At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. Before we jump in about the process of how the James Beard Awards work, I want to say that we were a little closer than normal to the process this year. After I started working on this episode, I learned that this podcast won a nomination in its category. On that day in March, there was a lot of dancing. It didn't win, but I'm counting the nomination to success anyway. I want to thank all of you for listening, and I hope you'll continue. Here's this week's show. Each December, food editors and writers ask themselves a very loaded, difficult question. What were the best things we published this year? We do this because the start of the following year will be the beginning of award season in food media. It's like our Oscars, with less gold leaf on the food and much shorter speeches. The James Beard Foundation Awards have been around since 1991, plucking out and honoring the best of the year's books, articles, essays, blogs, and video and food. They do this for chefs and restaurants too. And everything, the foundation, and later the awards, is named in honor of James Beard. The legendary cook, food writer, and teacher many call the father of American cooking. Last night at the awards dinner, a lot of journalists traded their jeans for their nicer jeans and gathered to hear the winners. I'm Kenzie Wilbur, this is Food 52's Burnt Toast, and today we're walking through how it all happens, from the submission process to the moment a cookbook wins. And I say cookbook because for the purpose of focusing this episode, I chose to trace a cookbook's path. Here's the story. When I said before that food editors consider what to submit, I wasn't representing the whole pool. Andrea Weigel, who serves as chair of the Book Awards subcommittee, explains anyone with an internet connection and the funds for the submission fee is given a fair shake. You know, in the fall, the book award entries open and people have until like mid-December to enter the book. And anybody can enter, author, publisher, agent, proud mother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if, you, if you spend the money, if you want to spend the money, you can enter your book. So when she says spend the money, this is what she means. If you haven't paid to be a member of the foundation, it's $150 a pop. Members get to submit for $100. For context, a typical pool of cookbooks is around $400, give or take. Do the math, and that's $60,000 in submission fees just for the cookbook category alone. According to the foundation, that money cycles back in to support the very system that runs the show, but it doesn't go toward judges or committee members. Neither are paid. And then all the books, we had like 413 entries this year, um, are brought to the foundation's accounting firm. And the committee members gather there, and the books are all laid out on this huge conference table in stacks based on their category. And we go through them and make sure that they kind of meet the entry rules, that kind of thing. Can I ask quickly, why the account? Why the accounting firm? Is that just like a good space or? Yes, that is really just that. Okay. <laughs> um, the foundation offices doesn't have a conference room 
large enough to handle that many books. Ah, okay. Yeah, so they just have a bigger conference table. <laughs> um, I like so, that yeah. detail. But we we spend the majority of that day uh, making sure the categories are correct, and then we pick four judges for each category and mm-hmm. assign them. And our judges are like food writers and bloggers and cookbook authors and cooking instructors and some chefs. Um, and how do you choose the judges? Is there a process for that? There, There is. We have like a working spreadsheet of judges that we've used in the past. Um, every year we add more people to the spreadsheet and they're kind of vouched for by committee members. We try not to have judges judge every year that we really ideally want them to judge every other year. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we need a big pool of people to, pull, to choose from because we need about 44 judges each mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. And sometimes judges, you can't judge if you have a book up for consideration. Uh-huh. So that knocks out a, a big chunk of our judges yes, of course. every year. So um, that's kind of how it works. And some of our judges are like Barbara Haber and Jessica Harris, who are well-known food historians. Peter Reinhardt and Ann Willen, who are, you know, James Beard award-winning cookbook authors. These are the kinds of people that we use as judges. Another example would be Matt Sartwell. He's the owner of Kitchen Arts and Letters, one of New York's most loved cookbook stores. He's also the bookseller, so he has a near-encyclopedic knowledge of cookbooks both historic and new. And that stipulation Andrea mentioned about not having judges come back for consecutive years, Matt's an exception. Uh, I think it's 11th time for me. What keeps you involved year after year? Well, I, um, I, I like it. It's fun. Uh, it gets me to engage with books intensely for a period of time. In, a, in the bookstore, the flow of new things is so constant. Um, and I'm seeing things and I'm making sort of enough time to be able to describe them to other people and hopefully do it well. But for the judging, I have to spend more time with them. I am cooking with them um, and I'm rolling up my sleeves. And it's a, it's a kind of intensity that I don't have time for most of the rest of the year, but I sort of push things aside to make it happen. Um, I was on the book committee for a while uh, and that definitely uh, gave me a sense of how it works on the other side. But on the other hand, this year when I was filling out my ballot, I still had that sort of first year anxiety? Am I answering the questions right? Have I thought about this enough? Do have I taken this one seriously? Am I, uh, am I being too glib? Uh, so I think, I think I'm still doing a good job judging because I'm still excited to hear the results when they come out. Mm-hmm. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans, but in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beat in cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great in clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hard-working hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. But back to that conference room, before the judging starts. All of the entries are stacked on the table, and the committee has vetted every single one to make sure that it's in the right category and that it's published in the correct year. So you can picture the size of the stacks. Andrea said that their biggest categories, like general cooking or single subject, could include 50 or 60 books each. Last year's pool was a record at 419. This year, as she said, 413 were considered. Then they get packed up and sent. We ship the books out to the judges, and it's always like this 
uh, if you are a cookbook lover, it is a great moment when that four or five boxes full of books <laughs> lands on your door. <laughs> so what is that moment like when they all arrive? It can be intimidating. It's it's exciting. I mean, even though I work with, with food books all year round, there's still something fun about opening the boxes and seeing what's in there. Uh, there are always surprises to me, books that I haven't encountered before that show up in a category. And um, so it's fun to sort of sort through them and try and begin an initial process of understanding what's in a category. Do certain books group together? Are they similar? Is the category very disparate? Um, the, I've done this often enough that I begin thinking about the narrowing process even as I'm unpacking and I'm sort of making piles of things that are like, wow, this looks like it could be really promising or this looks like it's kind of unfortunate. Um, <laughs> The whole judging process lasts six weeks, but it starts the minute each judge opens his or her box. There's a lot of reading and testing to get through later, and we'll talk about that too. But when it comes to that narrowing process Matt's talking about, a lot happens in the first few hours. And you can get a good sense for this from how the book subcommittee instructs their judges. This is the advice I tend to give to my judges when I'm working with them. It's that you dive right in and start looking through all the books. And what you want to do is um, narrow it down to 10 to 12 and then start testing recipes because some books are going to fall out in that process and you have to get to your top five. We're looking for kind of how interesting is the concept, the organization, the writing style, research, a long-term appeal, you know, overall design, visual quality, excellence, scope. Those are the things that when you start thinking about them, like how well executed is this book? Where does it fit into the canon of books on this particular topic? Mm -hmm. You know, how groundbreaking is it? How well done is the research? So those are the things that you are keeping in the top of your mind as you're getting to that 10 to 12. It's a lot to consider. Here's Matt. I think almost always uh, you look for something that that rewards the interest that drives someone to make a purchase. I look, at least, for books that take the reader and the purchaser, who are usually the same thing, but not always, uh, seriously. That say, if you're buying a book about the work of a particular chef, or you're buying a book about making donuts, or you're buying a book about the food of Peru, you're buying it because you care more than just, you know, the time it would take to download a recipe off the internet. So the book should be offering greater detail than you might find in a quick recipe search, and it should offer um, some insight, some thoughtfulness. I'm also looking for simple things like, is there an index, um, which sometimes doesn't happen, unfortunately. Are there, is there a bibliography to help somebody who gets excited go farther? Those are things that I think for me, I mean a, a book gets more a, a more serious look. Okay, and and what what makes you put something in the unfortunate pile? Well, books that would be missing, things like that. Mm -hmm. Books that are um, that don't take a reader's interest too seriously. If I start flipping the head notes, and all they are is basically uh, a description of the recipe. You know, here's a chicken salad with grapes in it and some walnuts, and then and they're just telling you what you would see quickly reading the ingredient list, I'm going to start passing that book by. But if it says 
this is a recipe that I learned from uh, a woman who had a roadside shack uh, outside Barcelona, and she'd gotten the recipe from her mother, and she tells me that she's taken a traditional recipe and changed it this way. Then I feel like the author is is giving you more of the experience of of the culture that it comes from, or understanding why it is that you might be bothered to read the recipe note to begin with. And you want to read more? Yes, somebody who draws you in, somebody who says, you know, you've spent thirty five dollars or fifty dollars or twenty five dollars, and I'm going to give you more than the stuff that you could download off the internet. The foundation requires judges to test only two recipes from each of their top five books. And they ask them to keep a few key questions in mind as they cook. How clear is it? How concise? How, how much do you feel like the cookbook author is there in the kitchen with you? Um, and how successful is the result? But at least two recipes from your top five is totally relative. Testing only 10 recipes from a box of 50 to 60 books can feel a little like just scratching the surface of what these books are trying to get across. So many judges go beyond this. This year, Matt tested from nine books instead of the requisite five, and he tested more than two recipes from each. There are multiple reasons why I might do that. Sometimes a book that I think is very promising, I will have a disappointing uh, recipe result with. So I will try again. I know from having been a bookseller that there isn't a book on the face of the planet that somebody doesn't walk into our store and say, you know, the recipes in here don't work. Um, Sometimes it's a disconnect between uh, a cook and the writer, and it's not necessarily so much of a flaw in the way the recipe is written. It's just some slight differences in assumptions. So if I hit a hiccup with something, I'll test again for my book. Um, Sometimes you end up with recipes that are, in truth, composites of three or four recipes. So there might be a sauce that goes with it, and there might be uh, some sort of base or a meat that has to be started three days in advance before you can assemble the whole thing. Um, So unless I hit just, you know, bang, bang, two awesome recipes right away. I'm likely to do a little extra testing. Mm -hmm. I asked if he has any pet peeves in recipe writing, any unforgivables. When I'm cooking from a book, I can't stand when you're asked to flip back and forth repeatedly to find sub-recipes. I don't own a bookmark, and I don't love being sent on some kind of wild goose chase just to finish a salad. I wondered if he had any similar gripes that might influence his judging. Oh, I'm completely sympathetic to that point of view. No, I, I dislike that. Would it would it really cause me to drop a book that I had otherwise fallen in love with? Probably not. But maybe it wouldn't rise to the top of my list. I mean, it, you know, eventually you count against it because you do assume that the reader's experience in using the book has to be a real part of evaluating the merit. Um, I have a couple of secret dislikes that I have not actively allowed to influence my judgment, but... Um, I really can't stand baking books that don't have weights. Mm. Um, and uh, <laughs> in years when I've been in the baking category, I've really um, had to strive to not penalize books for that because it's certainly not a requirement of the foundations. I do like books with more personality. If the personality of the headnotes fits the recipe style, that's great. Um, you, you sometimes have people who will say in a recipe, and at this point you could add an onion. Uh, and I like to do it. Or you could turn around and substitute a different herb. I like that kind of interaction between the author and, uh, and the reader, but it's not a necessity. 
That kind of interplay in recipe writing and whether or not the recipes work is still not the only thing judges are considering as they read and cook. They're also taking the look and feel of the thing into account. Aesthetics is a topic that becomes contentious every single year during Food 52's own tournament of cookbooks. This year, Brooks Headley, chef and owner of Superiority Burger in Manhattan, made a declaration about glossy photos being better than Matt. The crowd went wild. I'm with Brooks on that. Oh, Honestly, I okay. think that glossy images tend to do a better job uh, getting the color across and that matte images can be a little blurrier. Uh, that said, I've never thrown a book across the room because because of the paper <laughs> it was printed on as long as it does the job. Well, it's certainly, you know, we asked them to, you know, score the book based on visual elements, overall design. So it's certainly part of the process. Um, and the books get points for that. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't want to uh, not consider a book because the design isn't great if Mm -hmm. everything else is wonderful you know yeah sure and there's that point too that if you're a if you're a tiny title or a new author you may not have big publishing house dollars behind you and your book may not be as you know traditionally traditionally beautiful and i'm using air quotes in the studio right now because there's definitely an in vogue style of cookbooks right and it's some of it is expensive Right. And, you know, um, you know, academic presses usually can't achieve that, you know, glorious, beautiful um, cookbook style. But those, you know, I mean, I think the University of Texas Press picked our published our cookbook of the year last year. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I feel like it certainly plays a role, but it shouldn't be like the end all be all on whether a book makes it into your top five. Last year's cookbook of the year was Yucatan, Recipes from a Culinary Expedition by David Sterling, and it looks much more like a college text than it does an aspirational book of recipes. I used the Food of Oman in conversation with Matt to broach the same topic. It came out last year, and it's representative of the books you might not pay attention to until you start reading. The ones that look at first like they might easily have been at the bottom of the bargain bin at the Barnes & Noble. But Matt says that part of the point is finding the books that lie just outside of mainstream publishing. I think it would be easier for a book like The Food of Oman that is um, that is tackling fresh territory to get more serious consideration. Um, because you haven't seen it before. Because I haven't seen it before. I'm going to say, oh, here's somebody doing something that hasn't been done before. I mean, this isn't the umpteenth book on red velvet cupcakes. Uh, but instead, it's, uh, it's, it's somebody tackling an area where there hasn't been a lot of coverage and indeed, there might be a lot of people who would be very fascinated to know about this. So I'm going to look more deeply at that. Um, and I think to give the Beard Awards a lot of credit, they often recognize books that are stepping outside the familiar. And they often end up with category winners or books of the year that are dealing with areas that are not typically well addressed um, or at least densely addressed in mainstream publishing. So I think that the judges who get selected tend to be very excited to see things that are new and fresh. Mm. Um, On the other hand, it can be harder to fall in love with a book that's ugly. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's a difference between being ugly and being simple. Yes. And... um, we see, I see in the bookstore a lot of people who, who won't look at a book without photographs anymore. And, and it's a say, shame. And they say, how can I make that if I don't know what it looks like? And I usually restrain myself from saying, well, did your grandmother starve to death in an era before color printing? Um, 
but it is, it's a fact of, of life, people's exposure on the internet. I mean, there are so many places where you do see attractive food photography. I mean, Food 52 has a great visual style that comes across, and there are lots of other places where enticing photography helps people make decisions about mm-hmm. what it is that they'd like to cook. And there are also cases, you know, on the other hand, where the photograph doesn't totally match up with the instructions. And so you're told to do one thing, but you see the dice is a different size or, you know, a different shape. And it sort of adds another element of confusion and and comprehension to this thing that you may already be struggling through. <laughs> I, I don't know that I've ever penalized the book, admittedly, for for a failure to connect on that level. But it may... It's hard to forgive a book that sort of flagrantly disregards its readers that way. So I probably subliminally just sort of let it slip down the pile. Uh, The book is a promise. I mean, that's ultimately what it is when you see it is you pick it up and this book is saying, I'm going to teach you about the food of Oman or I'm going to teach you about making macaroons or I'm going to teach you about the food that I learned to eat traveling around the world. Um, And there are all kinds of ways that a book can deliver on that promise. But if you start getting the feeling that it doesn't really care about delivering on that promise, if it doesn't respect you as the reader, you're likely to grow suspicious of it. You're likely to leave it on the shelf. You're not going to come back to it. Mm -hmm. And most people, I think, these days don't have enough space. They don't have enough budget to keep acquiring books that that don't respect who they are as a reader. I mean, one of the questions on the ballot is, does this make a lasting contribution? Mm. And so all the judges are reminded that they're looking for the, for the long term, not for the, the quick and easy. The cupcake phase. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I joked one year that we were in danger of sort of entering a world in which all books were vegan, gluten-free, red velvet cupcakes made in a slow cooker. <laughs> uh, I think we've moved away from that kind of... Uh, complete trend following among publishers. So Matt might have one of the strongest moral compasses when it comes to judging a cookbook's value that I've ever encountered. He's this way in his store, too. He's always steered me in the right direction for the right reasons. But they don't rely on this alone. The foundation also sends out a ballot that they ask judges to fill out. It's basically a rubric, a list of guiding questions, which by nature feels a little scientific. I asked to see one, by the way, and even though you do get a sense throughout this episode for the kinds of questions the ballot asks, the foundation would not share one with me. Even still, with a strong moral compass and a rubric, the process still tends to be very human. I was really nervous the first time I did it and kept testing and, you know, unsure of myself. Like, am I, am, am I really finding, do I know how to do this? Am I going to identify the best ones? And I was so relieved when, like, Two of my top three ended up being finalists that year. I was like, okay, my instincts are right. I can't do this. this. The other judges agreed with me. It's like you have that validation. Right, yeah. Have you ever changed your mind at the last minute? (laughs) Um, Yes. Uh, There have been times when, as part of your balloting, you're asked to write essentially a few paragraphs describing why you have ranked things in the order that you have. And in writing that essay, I have sometimes come to realize that a book that I thought was perhaps workmanlike actually had something more distinctive to say. And there have been times when I realized that I really love the food in a particular book, but as I've thought more seriously about the other questions on the ballot, um, it doesn't quite stand up. 
It's interesting that you say writing that essay because I think Andrea described it to me as, you know, they they explain. And sub-judges just, you know, briefly give a couple of sentences and then the judges who go above and beyond, they'll write an essay. I, 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 am, I am an essayist in, yeah. in that respect. Um, one of the things you see when you first open up those cartons of books that arrive is that those, that is the work of a lot of people. Um, and there are going to be a few books in there that were done just because somebody said, oh, you know, such and such a publisher needs a book on, uh, on Brazilian food. But most of the rest of them are written because somebody cared. And you don't want to be too callous about that. And so when I'm sitting there saying, okay, out of my 50-odd books, this one is number one, that's, you know... Uh, that's relegating a lot of other people, putting them out of the running and not giving them a chance. So I want to be confident for myself and to the people who are reading my ballot that I know why I've made my choice. And writing it down helps you get there. Absolutely. So have you, in in all of your 11 years of testing, have I'm sure there have been books where, I mean, especially because you run a bookstore, there are sort of the, the uh, popular kids of the crops of books a year. Have you ever been surprised once you got to the testing phase where you could have sworn this was going to sort of take the cake and you just found a lot of unforgivables or or whatnot going through? Um, I haven't found too many cases of unforgivables. I have found in several cases books that I, you know, they've been incredibly popular at the bookstore. And then I sit down and I work with them and they're just fine. They're nothing out of the ordinary. Uh, I think they're an example of an author who's gifted it at getting attention and publicity coming out with a book that um, is really more of a souvenir of their personality and who they are and how they got to be where they are than it is about um, what it offers to someone who's actually going to use it. Um, Sometimes those are people who are celebrity chefs. Sometimes those are people who have a very minor connection with cooking, but who are just sort of big enough in pop culture. Um, but I've also found out that there have been books that I have been very suspicious of because, you know, just so much media exposure. Mm-hmm. And I think to myself, this can't be anything. It's just, you know, it's just over-marketed. And the book has actually come out and really surprised me. Matt says you have to change your point of view just slightly when you're judging a category of what we call chefy cookbooks. The ones that might feel more suited to your coffee table than to your kitchen counter. If you go out and you buy Ina Garten's book or The Smitten Kitchen or um, any of a lot of things that that are targeted at the home audience, you're buying it because the recipes look attractive and you would like to put that food on your table. A lot of the people for whom things, you know, the big $50 and upwards chef books are written, they're never going to serve that food at their restaurant. They're looking to say, you know, what does Dave Kinch at Man Reza do with this? How does he change the way this might be flavored or is he cooking it differently? And what inspires him? Right. And so that's what they're taking away from that book. And that is ultimately, I think, the purpose of books like that. The beer judging does ask the, for the books that also stand up and deliver cookable recipes. Um, and I think that's that's important to do because you don't want to reward something that disregards that aspect of, of what a cookbook is. Right. I mean, if they're in the book, they should be. They should, they should work. Right. Um, we see a lot of European books, and it sometimes happens that they get translated and released here. 
where the the recipes are are really written as sort of a, a gesture in the di- in the direction of how something is prepared rather than a set of instructions. Books that's like a beautiful that, way to say that. Well, books like that don't don't rise to the top in any kind of competition, but. If you're not cooking from them, you can have a great experience with them otherwise. But you have to know when you open up the book that if you see this really complicated, elaborately plated dish that has 18 components in it and the lines of instructions are are only six long, that you're probably not going to be getting a lot of explicit Yeah, that's not not Wednesday night dinner either. It's not Wednesday night dinner, and it's going to rely on your having a lot of built-in kitchen skills. So after the testing, the ballots are completed. Judges are asked about a dozen questions in total. They're also asked to thoroughly document their recipe testing. And finally, to numerically rank their top five cookbooks with an explanation about why they chose each one. Theoretically, all judges would be the essayists that Matt is, but that's not always the case. If your ballot is incomplete, if you know, we can't figure it out because the numerical scores are different, then we would disqualify it. And, you know, if your ballot is thin, then we're not going to disqualify it. But we might go, I don't know if this person's a good judge. From this point, all of the ballots, thin or not, though that's rare, go to an accounting firm where they're all scored. It's those numerical rankings that determine the nominations, that would be the top three in each category, and also the winner, that would be the number one. So after all of that nuanced testing and internal debating, the winner comes down to simple math. Whoever's in first place in each category wins. This also means that the subcommittee members know the winner well before the rest of the world. They know as soon as the nominations go out. Andrea knows right now, as I'm recording the narration for this episode, she also knew a month ago. Matt, on the other hand, will experience hearing the winners with the rest of us. Going in, um, you know, to the dinner where the awards are presented, I'll be as blind as, as anybody else. And, you know, rooting for some people, but I think I could probably see almost anything, at least it was on my, sh- my list of serious contenders, win and, and feel that a good choice was made. For the record, I did try to get a scoop for you all on this year's nominations. I failed. Uh, no, I can't, I, can't confess my, uh, I can't confess my judging category. I mean, there are, a lot of, there are a lot of really great books that have come out this year that I would be surprised didn't, don't make it to the top, but I'd rather not answer that question. But by now, the suspense is over. Like I said at the top of the show, winners were announced last night at the awards dinner, and we'll link to the full list on the site. Congrats to every single one of them. And that's it for this episode of Burnt Toast. Thanks to my producer, Kristen Meinzer, and also to Laura Mayer, Henry Malofsky, and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Please let us know what you think of the show. Our Twitter handle is at Food52, or you can leave us a review on iTunes. For Andrea Weigel and Matt Sartwell, I'm Kenzie Wilbur. We'll talk to you all next time. Thanks so much for listening.